Well, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's word as we continue in worship. If you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Luke chapter 21, and I will be reading verses 5 through 19. Luke 21, verses 5 through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. And while some were speaking of the temple, how it was adorned with noble stones and offerings, he said, As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And they asked him, Teacher, when will these things be, and what will be the sign when these things are about to take place? And he said, See that you are not led astray, for many will come in my name, saying, I am he, and the time is at hand. Do not go after them. And when you hear of wars and tumults, and do not be terrified, for these things must first take place, but the end will not be at once." Then he said to them, nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be great earthquakes and in various places famine and pestilence. And there will be terrors and great signs from heaven. But before all this, they will lay your hands on you and persecute you, delivering you up to the synagogues and prisons. And you will be brought before the kings and governors for my namesake. This will be your opportunity to bear witness Settle it, therefore, in your minds not to meditate beforehand how to answer, for I will give you a mouth and wisdom, which none of your adversaries will be able to withstand or contradict. You will be delivered up even by parents and brothers and relatives and friends, and some of you they will put to death. You will be hated by all for my name's sake, but not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. What, what in our world truly lasts? Just, just think about, I mean, like you can, you can take that question anyway, but just, just think about what absolutely lasts in our world. In a day and age where we find things like, like advancing technology, fast fashion, disposable everything, and our insatiable desire for the newest, next best thing, It's a worthy question to ask, what truly lasts in our world? It's a rarity to find people that keep the same job for more than a decade. It's a rarity to find people who keep the same phone for more than eight minutes or wear the same boots for more than a season or drive the same car for more than a couple years. And and that's one that speaks to my life. I, I have owned an embarrassingly large number of cars throughout my life. And it's not because I'm wealthy, it's because I have had terrible luck purchasing cars. In fact, one, one car I owned recently, it was probably in the last eight or nine years, it was a car that uh, routinely overheated. And, and I had to, in order to, to keep it from overheating, I had to turn the heat on to draw the heat from the engine. I also had power lock windows, or power windows, that would not roll down. So, in the, so if, you're, if you're putting those two things together, in the heat of summer, while my car would overheat, I would have to turn the heat on with the windows up. I drove Dante's Inferno. That's, that's the name of my car. And, and I, I kid you not, the next car I owned did not have a functioning heater. I, I would go through winter without heat. These were my two cars that I owned as a grown man and an adult. I, I have terrible luck with cars. I should just buy mopeds from here on out. I think that would be much wiser. But, but as we think about it, I mean, cars, jobs, things we own, what truly lasts in this world? It is nowhere written that the United States of America, uh, the European Union, the free market, democracy itself, nowhere is it written that these things will last forever. For there's only one kingdom that lasts 
until the end. And this is the, the, the one idea I want us to remember from Jesus' words in Luke 21. Only one kingdom lasts until the end. You see, throughout Luke's gospel, Jesus has been proclaiming the good news of the kingdom that is now and is yet to come, that is now and will be forever. And his kingdom is not simply one of many. It is not simply a mighty kingdom. It is the only kingdom that lasts until the end. And Jesus is definitive and clear about that. So, so with that in mind, as we turn to Luke 21 together, I want us to hear from Jesus in what is arguably the most confusing, challenging, and complexing, uh, complex of all of Jesus' teachings. It's referred to as the Olivet Discourse. Uh, it's because Matthew and Mark record this as taking place on the Mount of Olives, just opposite the temple. And it is a confusing text, to say the least. And, and, and one of the particular challenges is that Jesus, as he's speaking, he is speaking both about the, dis- the, the impending destruction of the Jerusalem temple that we know from history took place in 70 AD under the, the Roman general Titus, but then Jesus in the same breath is also speaking about the end times, things that have not yet happened even in our day. And so which is it, Jesus? Is, is the sign of the end times the destruction of the temple, or is it something else, or is it a combination of both? And to answer that question, we have to understand the purpose of what the temple is. To be a thoughtful reader of the New Testament, we have to understand the Old Testament. Now, Luke records for us in verse 5 that there were some who were admiring the beauty and the opulence of the Jerusalem temple. And and this is not without exaggeration. It truly was a remarkable sight to behold. This is an artist's rendition of what the temple in Jesus' day would have looked like. It was a sight to behold. It, it, this is the, the, re, the reconstruction of the temple built under King Herod, and it was indeed a stunning structure. In fact, the ancient historian Josephus, in writing of the Jerusalem temple, described it with these words, the exterior of the building wanted nothing that could astound either mind or eye. For being covered on all sides with massive plates of gold, the sun was no sooner up than it radiated so fiery a flash that persons straining to look at it were compelled to avert their eyes as from the solar rays. It's almost like it has the glory of the sun. To approaching strangers, it appeared from a distance like a snow-clad mountain, for all that was not overlaid with gold was of purest white. The glorious temple, which represented God's presence with his people and was very precious to the nation of Israel, it is this temple that Jesus says is going to be destroyed. Look with me at verse 6. So, so after, after the surrounding crowd is talking about how beautiful and opulent the temple is, Jesus says these words. As for these things that you see, the days will come when there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Which is, I just find kind of, I mean, in this moment, it seems like Jesus is being this Debbie Downer. People are like, man, the temple is beautiful. It's like, yeah, it's pretty nice. It's going to burn. I mean, it's just like, it, it would be as if my child, one of my children, opening a present on their birthday, they're like, oh my goodness, they're so excited, and then I respond by saying, it's just going to end up in our garage sale next year, which is probably true, but you just don't say those things out loud. That's kind of what Jesus is doing. He's, he's kind of this Debbie Downer in this moment, but in Jesus bringing their attention to the impending destruction of the temple, he's actually saying something more definitive and powerful about his kingdom. As great and as beautiful and as powerful as the temple is and what it portrays, the kingdom of Jesus is far greater. As great as the temple is, it will not be standing in the end, in the form and shape that they see it in this moment. 
But the question is, but okay, so wasn't the temple God's idea? Like, like why, is it, why is Jesus seeming to be so cavalier about this? And yes, that's true. The temple was God's idea. But keep in mind, the temple was meant to be a representation, a foreshadowing of the fullness of the presence of God with his people that is made manifest in the person of Jesus and in the people of Jesus. It was not actually, the temple was not actually the dwelling place of God. And we, we know this, uh, this is true of, of what's recorded in the New Testament, but also the Old Testament prophet Isaiah, chapter 66, verse 1, God says these words, thus says the Lord, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? The temple represented God's presence with his people. It represented the place where heaven and earth overlapped. The temple was the place that represented where, where sins could be sacrificed for and paid for and forgiven and where God and humanity could be restored. That's what it represented, but it pointed to a greater reality to come, namely Jesus and his kingdom and his gospel. So Jesus is saying that the temple, which itself was symbolic, so hang with me here, Jesus is saying that the temple, which itself was symbolic, would actually be destroyed in 70 AD, and we know that to be true. But the real destruction of the temple would itself be an act that is symbolic of something else, which is part of why this is so confusing. Jesus is using an illustration, the temple, to illustrate an even greater reality that I mentioned this passage is kind of confusing and hard to translate. So when Jesus speaks about the temple being destroyed, he's speaking about a real historical event that will take place and that has taken place in our time. He is speaking about a real event to express an even greater reality. And so, so Jesus is speaking in what is referred to as apocalyptic literature. It's, it, he's speaking about real events that are symbolic and representative of something greater. The real destruction of the symbolic temple is itself symbolic of the greater hardships that Jesus' followers will face throughout history. Are you with me? It's, it's okay for not. I don't even know if I'm with me. It's, it's hard to follow. But, but, but Jesus is trying to show the symbolic temple as being, the destruction of the temple as itself being symbolic of the hardships that his people will face throughout history. Jesus is saying that if you think the destruction of the temple is bad news, then you need to be prepared for the, the trials, the challenges, the, the, the persecutions that my people will face, the cost you will endure as citizens of my kingdom on this earth. And this, this point is reiterated by Jesus in, in what he says in, in, in verses 10 through 19. He describes wars and natural disasters, persecutions of all kinds. And he sums it all up in verses 17 and 19. Let me go back to Luke 21. Verses 17 and 19. You, referring to his followers, both in that moment and, and throughout time, you will be hated by all for my namesake. But not a hair of your head will perish. By your endurance, you will gain your lives. It's almost like Jesus is asking his disciples a question in, in, this, in this Olivet Discourse. It's like, if the temple were destroyed, will you still trust me? If this, this symbol of your historic faith is gone... Will you still trust in my kingdom? If sickness, famine, and war come upon you, will you still trust me? If you are persecuted, imprisoned, put to death even, hated by everyone around you, will you still trust me? The kingdom of comfort and security will not stand in the end. 
Only Jesus' kingdom will. The kingdom of national, political, and military power will not stand in the end. Only Jesus' kingdom will. The kingdom of of prosperity and economic security will not stand, but Jesus' kingdom will. There is only one kingdom that lasts until the end. And Jesus is saying it it is his kingdom. And he is showing us what life looks like in this kingdom that lasts. And and this is where I want to bring our attention. I want to share some things that I I think Jesus is saying in describing how life lived in the kingdom that lasts, what this life looks like. And the first thing I want to bring our attention to is this, that life lived in the kingdom that lasts, that's a lot of L words, anticipates hardships with hope. It anticipates hardships with hope. Hardships await everyone in life. There's no question about that. We all recognize no one goes through life unscathed. As, as the, the great Hamilton song, the, the musical, not the hedgehog, uh, the song Wait For It proclaims, death doesn't discriminate between the sinners and the saints. It takes and it takes and it takes. We, we, we all know that we face hardship, pain, sorrow, and loss in life. But life in the kingdom of Jesus that lasts equips us to anticipate and endure hardships with a hope that cannot be found apart from Jesus. And this hope, this hope does not change the intensity or the frequency of hardships in our life or pain in our life, but it does reframe hardships and pain in our life by fixing our eyes upon Jesus the one who is our hope, we are able to anticipate hardships with hope, which is why Jesus says this to his disciples in verse 28. Now, when these things begin to take place, straighten up and raise your heads because your redemption is drawing near. Hardships, trials, and persecutions will come, and for those who are in Christ... Unique hardships will come precisely because that we are associated with Jesus in a world that can and often is hostile to his kingdom. But it is in these moments that we are to straighten up, to lift our heads, to fix our eyes upon Jesus who is our redemption and who is drawing near. Biblical hope is not about wishing for fewer hardships in life. But it is about enduring any hardship, knowing that there is only one kingdom that lasts until the end. I want to say that again. Biblical hope is not about wishing for fewer hardships in life. It is about enduring any hardship, knowing that only one kingdom lasts until the end. And and there are many examples that we could draw from throughout church history for for inspiration, uh, for a foundation of what it means to have hope in the midst of hardship. And I believe that, that one great and prime example that we should not overlook is the historic black church. In fact, uh, the great scholar Howard Thurman, in a lecture he gave at Harvard University in 1947, uh, he was giving a lecture on the impact, the history, and the theology of the great Negro spirituals. These were the songs that, that many enslaved brothers and sisters of ours in the faith would sing and form their theology that was centered around the hope of the kingdom that was to come. And Thurman said this, the facts make clear that this sung faith did serve to deepen the capacity of endurance and the absorption of suffering. That is a great phrase. It taught a people how to ride high in life, to look squarely in the face those facts that argue most dramatically against all hope, and to use those facts as raw material 
out of which they fashioned a hope that the environment, with all its cruelty, could not crush. That is a perseverance and an endurance and an ability to face hardship with hope that, that we, we should learn from and emulate. Thurman went on to argue that it was the great hope of the final judgment and the hope of the new heavens and the new earth, of the resurrection of Jesus, that, it, that empowered enslaved black Christians to endure the atrocities and the evils and injustices committed against them through slavery. Their hope in the kingdom of Jesus, which was greater than the kingdom of their white slave owners, assured them that they would overcome and that no perpetrator would get away with any injustice or oppression. Their hope was that Jesus, our great king and judge, would set the world to rights and that that was a hope that no amount of hardship or injustice could drown out. And so, just, I mean, as a side note to that, I mean, yes, the evils of, of race-based slavery, of segregation in our nation, it should still cause us to grieve and to lament, to be mindful and aware, especially knowing that much of it was done by those who professed the name of Jesus. But the resilient hope in the kingdom of Jesus that lasts, embraced by our many black brothers and sisters who were themselves enslaved, should embolden us as we live in and long for Jesus' kingdom now. Life in the kingdom that lasts anticipates hope with hardships. But second, it also pays attention to attention. Now, what do I mean by that? This is actually a reference to Jesus' exhortation to his disciples in verse 34. Turn, turn with me there, Luke, Luke 21, verse 34. But watch yourselves lest your hearts be weighed down with dissipation and drunkenness and the cares of this life. And that day come upon you suddenly like a trap. Now that phrase, watch yourselves, it's a very unique phrase in the original Greek language. It's actually, the original Greek, it's the translation of the English phrase, watch yourself. It's a Greek phrase that literally means hold your mind. Hold your mind. It's more than just paying attention it is paying attention to what you pay attention to. That's the idea. It's this picture of kind of taking your mind out of yourself and observing it. Being able to observe yourself as outside of yourself, paying attention to what you pay attention to. Or think about it this way. It's, it would be like observing yourself on surveillance footage in some way. I don't know if you've ever been on surveillance footage. I have, and I won't share more stories about that. But, uh, but there's, there's this weird experience of watching yourself on video you're able to kind of pay attention to what you're doing in that moment. So here's a recent example. If you were with us last week during the 9.30 service, my iPad died in the middle of my sermon. And it was during the live stream service, and I kind of panicked a little bit. And I was thinking, maybe I can kind of continue on. But I was freaking out. And I went back to watch the video of that to kind of see how I conducted myself. Because in my mind, it lasted like 15 minutes, and I freaked out and like fell down crying. That's what happened in my mind. But I was actually more calm and collective on the outside than I realized. But, but in that moment, as I turn to my notes, and it's just dead, uh, panic and fear kind of sets in. And, I, and I'm noticing, as I'm paying attention to my emotions, panic and fear sets in because I felt very vulnerable and exposed in that moment. And I felt vulnerable and exposed because I was so concerned in that moment of what you all would think of me. 
And, and I didn't realize this in the moment, but it took, me, it took time for me to pay attention to what I was paying attention to, to realize how concerned I was with your view and perception of me. You see, that's very different from me just paying attention to my iPad. Paying attention to me, paying attention to my iPad, helped me see some of the emotional things that were going on in my heart. L let me give another example. Think about if, if you're a person who is a little bit too tied to their phone. Have you ever asked yourself why? Why do I find myself distracted by my phone? Why do I find myself this natural proclivity to pull my phone out in times of, of boredom? Is it because I want to be distracted because the moment I'm in right now, I'm very unhappy? I just don't want to be in? Is it because I'm seeking some kind of validation or acceptance or belonging that I'm not feeling in this moment? Am I wanting to accomplish some task to make me feel worthy and significant? Do you pay attention to what you pay attention to? And Jesus, in this, in this preparation of living in the kingdom that lasts, he is calling us to be mindful, to be watchful, to be alert, and to be attentive, not just in life, but in how we are living in this life. We need to pay attention to the things that are forming us and shaping us because oftentimes we are oblivious to the impacts that the things around us have on us. And so what has our attention? What is it that we are in search of, striving toward, and longing for in life? And are we aware of that in the various habits and practices of our life? Jesus' Jesus' call for us to watch ourselves is not simply a word of warning, it is a prescriptive plea to guard us from what Jesus describes as our hearts being weighed down by the cares of life. Many of you know this, we are in the season of Lent that began with Ash Wednesday, last Wednesday. It is a season that is leading up to Holy Week of Good Friday, uh, Palm, Sunday, or Palm Sunday, Good Friday, and Easter. And Lent is a season where the people of Jesus historically and uniquely engage in practices of prayer, repentance, and introspection. Or in other words, it is a season where we engage in a more heightened practice of paying attention to what we pay attention to. So friends, think about it. What, what, are, what are the desires behind our desires? What are the sinful motivations behind our destructive behaviors? What are the deceptive lives, lies behind our hollow pursuits? What are the ungodly desires that unleash chaos in my life and in your life? May God grant us the ability to see the depth of our sin so that we might be able to turn from them and turn toward him. So life in the kingdom that lasts, it anticipates hardship with hope. It pays attention to attention, but lastly... It expects God at all times. It expects God at all times. Now, when you hear that phrase, expect God at all times, you, you, your mind might be going to anticipating the return of Jesus, which is true, and that's what Jesus is speaking to in many ways in the Olivet Discourse. Jesus has promised to return. Followers of Jesus believe that he will return to establish his forever kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we don't know the time in which Jesus will return, but it is still true. But as we've seen and heard from Jesus, his kingdom is not just a future reality. It is a present reality in some way, shape, or form that is broken in. The kingdom of Jesus is a now and not yet reality. It is a present and future reality simultaneously. And so, yes, we are to live with a, a constant expectancy 
of Jesus' return. But that also means we are to live our lives with a constant expectancy for God to show up and be at work in our lives now. It is not merely a, a passive waiting around for Jesus to come, but to live with an expectancy of God at all times means that we expect him to show up as we gather and worship, as we serve and work in our various vocations and callings, as we enjoy a meal with loved ones, as we weep with those who are hurting and facing tragedy. We expect God to show up in those moments because we believe that he is present with us. So yes, we are to live with a constant expectancy. And that means we are to live knowing that God is present with us. In fact, I, I love our, our denomination, the Evangelical Free Church of America, our statement of faith uh, that describes the return of Christ. It's one of my favorite articles in the statement of faith, and it reads this way. We believe in the personal, bodily, and glorious return of our Lord Jesus Christ. The coming of Christ at a time known only to God demands constant expectancy. I love that phrase. And as our blessed hope, motivates the believer to godly living, sacrificial service, and energetic mission. I love this. We, we see this, this idea of expecting for God is not, a pass, is not a passive waiting, as I mentioned, but it is an active seeking, an active anticipation, an active expectancy. Far from being grounds for disengaging from life in this world, waiting for heaven to come, what we see is that the good news of the kingdom compels us to serve others, to love our neighbors, to seek justice, to work for the common good, to share the gospel with those who are far from Jesus, and to do so with a joy, knowing that God will indeed show up. C.S. Lewis, he brilliantly captures this idea of, of the Christian hope as a foundation for life now. It is not merely a pie-in-the-sky reality, but Lewis says this, a continual looking forward to the eternal world is not, as some modern people think, a form of escapism or wishful thinking, but one of, th of the things a Christian is meant to do. It does not mean that we are to leave the present world as it is, if you read history, you will find that the Christians who did most for the present world were just those who thought most of the next. When we understand that we are citizens through Christ Jesus and his life, death, and resurrection, we are citizens of a kingdom that lasts, our hope compels us to be a people who seek the good of our neighbors now for the glory of God, not waiting for something to come. We expect God at all times. Life in the kingdom that lasts, it anticipates hardships with hope. It pays attention to what we pay attention to, and it expects God at all times. For there is only one kingdom that lasts until the end, and it is the kingdom of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? This is the only kingdom that lasts, the only one that endures. The kingdom of the one who, who faced the end of life by facing death and kept going. The one who secured and promised this forever kingdom through his blood on the cross. That this forever kingdom is so precious to the Lord Jesus and to our Father in heaven that he would give his son to secure its promise for us. Jesus is declaring to us that although we will encounter hardships of many kinds, Although we will face trials and temptations of many kinds, and although we are surrounded by kingdoms of many kinds, his is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen? Jesus' kingdom is the only kingdom that lasts. 
And so, friends, the question is, what kingdom are we a part of? What kingdom have we entered, and what kingdom are we longing for? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we expect you to be present with us, for we know that you are. Lord, it's, in some ways it is silly for us to pray, Lord, be with us, for you are with us. Lord Jesus, I pray that in this moment you would, by the power of your spirit, grant us the ability to see the beauty, the majesty, the, the vastness of your kingdom that truly is the only one that lasts until the end. Lord, I pray that you would equip us to be a people who are, who are able to anticipate all hardships with hope. Lord, I know that now, my brothers and sisters in this moment, there are, there are many here who are facing or in the midst of these hardships, and I ask that you would grant them the ability through the hope of Jesus Christ and his forever kingdom to face these hardships. May we share in their burdens together, and may we collectively as one people who have placed our hope in you anticipate these hardships with hope. Lord, give us the ability to pay attention to the things we pay attention to. Help us to be mindful and aware of the way in which we have given ourselves to things lesser than you. And Lord, would we be a people who expect you to show up and to be at work in our lives in every place you have sent us? Yes, as the church gathered, but also as we scatter, would we expect you at all times and all places? And Lord, would you draw those who are far from you into the life of your kingdom now through the power of Jesus, whose life, death, and resurrection is our only hope in life and death. It is in his name and for his glory that we pray. Amen.